Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Dazed and Confused, where we follow up on last week's Necafema Fracture episode with a discussion around post-operative delirium, what it is, how to assess it, and some strategies to try and prevent it. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Delirium is an acute disturbance of the state of mind. As anaesthetists, we most commonly see post-operative delirium, which is to some extent a drug-induced delirium. However, post-operative delirium is likely far more complex with several contributing factors. The DSM-5 criteria for diagnosing delirium is as follows. There is a disturbance in attention and awareness. The disturbance develops over a short period of time, so hours to days, and represents a change from baseline attention and awareness and tends to fluctuate in severity during a course of the day. There is an additional disturbance in cognition, such as memory deficit, disorientation, language, visuospatial ability, or perception. The disturbance in criteria A and C are not explained by another pre-existing, established, or evolving neurocognitive disorder and do not incur in the context of a severely reduced level of arousal, for example, a coma. There is evidence from the history, clinical examination and lab findings that the disturbance is a direct physiological consequence of another medical condition, substance intoxication or withdrawal, exposure to a toxin or is due to multiple etiologies. The pathophysiology of delirium remains uncertain, but there are many hypotheses as to its origin. Firstly, neuroinflammation. It has been noted that systemic inflammatory mediators increased significantly after surgery and remained high in the post-op period, and studies have shown that post-op elevation of peripheral CRP and interleukin-6 concentrations are associated with a higher risk of post-op delirium. This also occurs if levels are higher preoperatively. Now, we know that peripheral pathology can increase the inflammatory burden in the central nervous system, and there is some evidence from preclinical studies that peripheral inflammation can lead to the loss of structural and functional blood-brain barrier integrity and subsequent translocation of inflammatory cells and mediators into the central nervous system, and that this results in the loss of synaptic plasticity, neuroapoptosis, and impaired neurogenesis. The second theory regards an alteration in neurotransmitters. Acetylcholine is thought to be involved in neuroplasticity. It is present in several pathways responsible for attention and memory. Multiple studies have shown that patients with post-op delirium had lower acetylcholinesterase activity, but beyond this, there remains uncertainty as to the pathophysiology of the development of delirium. As well as this, several dopamine receptors and transporter gene polymorphisms have been found to alter the risk of post-op delirium. 
The last theory relates to subclinical cerebrovascular events. Diseases that increase the risk of cardiovascular events like hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and a previous CVA are all risk factors for developing post-op delirium. Indeed, radiological evidence of cerebrovascular ischemia can be seen in 7 to 10% of older surgical patients, and this is associated with more than double the risk of post-op delirium. There have also been studies looking at cerebrovascular perfusion pressures and the link between both elevated pressures above the autoregulatory limit as well as lower perfusion pressures and post-op delirium. So there are many factors that predispose to the development of delirium and these include patient characteristics such as male gender and increasing age, pre-existing cognition deficits such as depression, dementia, cognitive impairment or a history of delirium, functional impairment such as poor oral intake of diet and fluid, functional dependence, immobility, or history of falls, sensory impairment, for example, visual and hearing impairment, drugs such as alcohol and other substance withdrawal or polypharmacy, narcotics including tramadol and meperidine, sedatives, and drugs with anticholinergic effects including steroids, digoxin, and diuretics, and also medical conditions, and these can include severe acute or chronic illness, multiple comorbidities, electrolyte disturbance including hypomagnesemia, chronic fetal and liver failure, neurologic disease, including stroke, trauma. For example, in hip trauma, the rates can be as high as 50% and terminal illness. Now, looking at this list alone, thinking back to our last episode, we can see that the majority of patients suffering from fractured hips actually possess several of these risk factors. Yeah, very true. Now, a recent review of the literature published in the BJA separates the management of post-op delirium into two broad categories. The first is preoperative risk prediction, which involves risk stratification and risk reduction, and post-operative diagnosis and management. Ward-based reductive strategies include some of the following. Stratifying a patient's risk. Now, much of this is done by the orthogeriatrics teams, but where we get involved is in improving preoperative pain management and risk reduction, in which pre-op interventions include the following. Avoiding pre-op polypharmacy, where this is an independent risk factor for post-op delirium. Avoiding prolonged fasting for greater than six hours. Now, a large cohort study showed a link between fluid fasting for over six hours and post-op delirium with an odds ratio of 10.6 and comprehensive geriatric assessment. Now, as anaesthetists, there are many decisions that we can make about preoperative ward-based care and our intraoperative management that may significantly impact a patient's risk of developing delirium, as well as the duration of the delirium. Preoperative pain is associated with a 1.5 to 3 times higher risk of post-op delirium. Pain imposes a direct cognitive burden, triggers an acute stress response and increases the risk of post-operative complications such as atelectasis, which may also cause delirium. A systematic review showed that preoperative use of the fascioiliaca block for patients with fractured neck of femur reduced the risk of delirium as well as facilitating early fracture repair. For patients with other injuries or pathologies, it would seem logical to consider the use of other blocks as anatomically relevant to reduce pain and the use of systemic analgesia. Intraoperative interventions associated with a reduced risk of delirium include the following. Depth of anesthesia monitoring. So deeper anesthesia in combination with patient and surgical factors increases delirium risk. The use of multimodal opioid sparing analgesia. Higher post-op pain scores are associated with a higher risk of delirium and the use of opioids, particularly longer-acting opioids, is associated with an increased risk of post-op delirium. Regional and neuraxial techniques independently associated with a significant reduction in the incidence of delirium. The use of paracetamol and NSAIDs. Now, these drugs may directly prevent post-op delirium by directly alleviating neuroinflammation. 
Animal studies have shown that ibuprofen and paracoxib reduce neuroinflammation secondary to cerebral ischemia reperfusion and neuroinflammation secondary to remote insults. And an observational study of greater than 1 million surgical patients reported that paracoxib administration significantly lowered delirium risk, with an odds ratio of 0.85. Paracetamol in animal models has been seen to alleviate inflammation and oxidative stress in the hippocampus. Dexmedetomidine may have neuroprotective effects. Animal models have shown that it reduces the expression of inflammatory mediators, microglial activation, and neuroapoptosis. Meta-analysis has shown that intraoperative dexmedetomidine is associated with significantly lower concentrations of stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline, CRP, and TNF-alpha after surgery. Meta-analysis has also shown that intra- and post-operative dex administration significantly reduces the risk of post-operative delirium with an odds ratio of 0.35. Note that this is not specific to fractured neck of femur patients. This meta-analysis was of non-cardiac surgical patients trialled both intraoperatively and in the PACU. Surgical trauma can result in both an acute stress response and systemic inflammation. There is conflicting evidence as to whether minimally invasive techniques reduce the delirium risk or not. Also, the choice of pre-medication. So drugs that increase delirium risk include the tricyclic antidepressants, certain antihistamines, benzodiazepines, gabapentinoids and scopolamine, noting that scopolamine is not available in Australia but is available in New Zealand. Benzodiazepines have been associated with a 2 to 2.5 times increased risk in a large observational study of delirium. Gabapentinoids have been associated with slightly increased risk with an odds ratio of 1.26, but this needs to be balanced with their opioid-sparing effects. With regards to ketamine, a meta-analysis showed that 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo dose on induction did not increase delirium risk, but the quality of the evidence of this is low due to study bias and heterogeneity. The choice of general anaesthetic agents is important where observational studies haven't shown any significant difference in the risk of delirium between volatile and intravenous hypnotic agents. Avoiding hypothermia, I mean no surprises there. Intraoperative hemodynamic management. Now, a recent meta-analysis and several large observational studies have not shown any association between intraoperative hypotension and delirium. Several observational studies have shown that delirium is associated with higher intraoperative vasopressor requirements, and all of these were in high-risk surgeries. But we need more information as the current evidence for this link is lacking. And don't forget the relationship seen in the ASAP2 audit between intraoperative hypotension and both 5- and 30-day mortality. Intravenous fluids and blood administration. Now, transfusion can trigger systemic inflammation, where perioperative transfusion is associated with increased risk of delirium and it appears to be a dose-dependent relationship with risk. The management of post-operative delirium revolves around early diagnosis and non-pharmacological management, as these are the most effective for preventing and decreasing delirium duration. There are many screening tools in use throughout the world today and many advocate for their implementation even as early as in the post-operative anaesthetic care unit. For us as anaesthetists, there are a few things we can do in PACU to treat underlying potential causes. For example, ensure good pain management, correct dehydration and metabolic derangement, fix urinary retention and initiate management of constipation or prescribe medication for its prevention when our patients will be taking opioids. There are many other simple things that we can at least try to initiate in the PACU as well reorientation, vision and hearing optimization, which basically means returning the patient's hearing aids and glasses for their use, and ward-based treatment implemented by the multidisciplinary team and the orthogeriatricians includes reorientation, as we previously mentioned, cognitive exercises, sleep optimization, mobilization, good hydration and good nutrition.
Yeah, so I think it's interesting that you mentioned uh, reorientation in the PACU. I think I've noticed mm. some of the really experienced PACU nurses, they're very gentle with the patients, they mm. speak very calmly, they tell them where they repeatedly tell them where they are, what's mm. been happening, they do give them back their glasses or other aids. So mm. uh, I've been really interested observing that and, it's it, you know, we're never probably going to be able to quantify what effect that has but yeah. it can only help. Yeah, the other thing I've noticed in some instances is they there are some nurses that turn the lights down as well so they don't have these horrendous mm. kind of interrogation-style lights above the bed making them unable to see what's going on around them and I suppose further just orientating them now I don't know whether there's any cause or evidence behind that but certainly it doesn't seem to hurt yeah I suppose it's just you know concept of sensory overload but Mm. then also wanting the patients to know what time of day it is as well trying Mm. to find a balance Mm. so when it comes to pharmacological options for managing delirium um, there are limited options and these should be avoided as first-line treatments unless the benefits far outweigh the risks and there is a risk of harm to the patient or to staff Antipsychotics are the first-line drug treatment and may reduce the length of symptoms, although a recent meta-analysis refutes this and states that there is no reduction in symptom length or a reduction in adverse outcomes. Antipsychotics do not reduce the morbidity and mortality associated with post-operative delirium. If you're interested in this topic and would like to know more, ANSCA has a link to the Delirium Clinical Care Standard created by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. I will include this link in our show notes. Okay, this is the end of our second season of Deep Breaths. Can you believe it? Ah, I really can't. It's crazy. Um, so this started as a little idea, you know, between us. Yeah. And then as of the time of recording of this episode, we're heading towards 15,000 unique listens. That's out of this world. Um, so look, personally, my favourite part of this podcast is getting feedback from our listeners. Please drop us a line on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Tell us how you're going, what you're enjoying. If you want any other topics, just say hi. We mm. really love it. Mm. And a special shout out to Martin from Sweden, who absolutely made my day last week by sending us a lovely email. Yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. Hard not to smile. So look, the great news is that we will be back for a third season in the second half of 2021. And we have a few topics lined up, but please email us if you have any suggestions. So thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next season on Deep Breaths.